So today's session <laughs> is called Sanctification Through Suffering, but we are going to mostly look at suffering in the context of serving. So when it comes to suffering, we all know that we don't have to look very hard to find it. We open up our news app, suffering. We open up our social media, we see the suffering of our friends. We wake up in the morning and we feel some kind of suffering that's personal. It could be a suffering that seems small, or it could be a suffering that seems short-lived, but either way, all across the board, we are surrounded by suffering, and we're going through suffering. And my hope that because we are all members of a local church, that we've also had experience with serving. So whether it's serving children on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoons for that hour um, or whatever our serving may look like. My hope is that we've experienced to some degree sacrificing a little bit of our life to serve Christ's bride um, but also to make Christ's name known. So where do we find the motivation to keep soldiering on as we are experiencing suffering? And where do we find inspiration to keep serving or maybe to start serving when it seems like our efforts are fruitless or futile? And how do we stay focused on God's purpose for our life? First and foremost is through God's word. Our first stop is always the Bible and our longest stop should be in the Bible. So we go to God's word to learn about who God is, who we are, and what our life looks like um, in light of that. Our greatest encouragement, our greatest motivation, inspiration, whatever you want to call it, always comes from God's Word. So praise the Lord that He has given us Himself through His Word. After that, another way that we can find this motivation or inspiration is just to look at brothers and sisters who have gone before us, who have served the Lord faithfully, who have suffered, and come out on the other side, ultimately closer to God. So they have used their suffering and their serving and let God sanctify them through that. I really love, um, I was reading this week in the book of Joshua, and there's a story of how God miraculously dries up the Jordan River. So the Israelites need to cross over to the other side. He dries it up completely. They get to the other side, the water starts running again, and then God tells them to set up these memorial stones. And so Joshua 4.24 says, this is so, so this is the memorial stones, this is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. And as I was reading this, I was like, man, when we take a missionary biography or the story of another sister in the faith, this is ultimately what it's doing. It's setting a memorial stone for what God is doing. Because ultimately, all of these ladies' stories are a part of a bigger story, and it's the story that God is working out. So my hope today is as we are looking at a couple of biographies of some women missionaries that, yes, we see them as a role model, someone that we can aspire to be like, but ultimately that we use their stories as a signpost to point us to God. So the roadmap for today, what we're going to do, we're going to look at two well-known missionary biographies. And then I'm going to share a third biography of a friend of mine who um, is a dear sister who has uh, served the Lord faithfully for all of her life. Um, and she was obviously unable to be here because she does not live on this continent, but she uh, sent a letter to you guys. So I'm just going to read that for you. And after every um, story, I want you guys to discuss um, a couple of things. So I'm going to talk a little bit, and then you guys are going to talk a lot of it. So... <laughs> 
Just to get started, um, the first lady that we're going to talk about is the first female missionary sent out from the United States. I'm sure that you guys have heard of her before. Her name is Anne Judson, but she was born Anne Hasseltine, so that's how she started her life. Anne was born in New England in the year 1789. Her family was very wealthy, and she enjoyed every comfort of the time. So she did not have air conditioner or Alexis, but she had the finer things of life for 1789. And she grew up to become quite the socialite. She was regularly attending parties, finding her identity in her social circles. But at 16 years old, Anne was confronted with the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of her own heart. She put her faith in Jesus, and everything changed from there. Her priorities shifted from living a self-serving life of ease to a commitment to serve the Lord no matter what the cost was. From the time of her conversion, she was really eager to serve others and tell the good news. And I loved that she immediately started thinking, okay, what can I do to further the gospel? And her answer to that was to be trained to become a teacher so that she would have influence over the lives of others. And she started off um, kind of her teaching with this prayer. She said, Oh, may I have the grace to be faithful in instructing these little immortals in such a way as shall be pleasing to my Heavenly Father. So I love that she looked at these students, not as someone who needed to learn math or history or whatever, but someone who would spend eternity either with or apart from God. And she prayed towards that end. Um, but her prayer didn't end there. She was really concerned now that she had received this saving faith with others receiving the same salvation. So she prayed for those around her, and she prayed that God would be glorified in conversions overseas. So even before being a missionary was in her vision, she was praying that people far away from her would experience the gospel. And she herself was influenced by biographies. And so she read the biography of David Brainerd, who was a missionary to Native Americans in uh, America at the time. And she wrote of that biography that it had a tendency to humble me and excite desires to live as near to God as that holy man did. And I said, wow, and that's the whole point of my talk, so thanks for writing that. Because that's what I want for us um, as well, that we want to live as near to God um, as these other holy people that have gone before us did. So when Anne met her future husband, whose name was Adoniram, he was already committed to taking the gospel overseas. So she essentially met him at a commissioning service with him and three other guys that were going to take the gospel to Asia. And they met, they were interested in one another, um, and he made a proposal to her for marriage, but... His proposal was essentially an invitation to join him on the mission field. So it wasn't a diamond ring and, hey, we're going to host the parties that you're accustomed to going to. It was, no, I'm proposing to you to take your comfortable life away, to give up every earthly thing for an unknown but surely uncomfortable future. And Anne didn't take this decision lightly. She took it really seriously. She wrestled with the implications. And in a letter to a friend, she said that she knew if this was a call from God, that she would be willing to relinquish every earthly object, understanding that it would be full of danger and hardship so that she could give herself up to the greater work. And ultimately, she decided that this, in fact, was God's call in her life. So she accepted the proposal, and in February 1812, she got married, and instead of 
going on a nice honeymoon. Emna understands enjoying the first blissful months of marriage. She gave it all up and got on a ship to sail far away to India. And her suffering immediately started. Um, as I said, Anne was really social. And so to say goodbye left her with an emotional anguish. Her friends, her family that she loved so dearly, she expected to never see them again. And um, being on a ship for months on end is just a brutal um, life, especially at that time. So after an intense time of travel at sea, they arrived in India to the warm weather and the warm welcome of, get out, we don't want you here. Mm -hmm. So the newlywed couple spent their first year homeless. Um, they were going around, they, they couldn't get permission from the government to stay. They didn't know not only what neighborhood to be in, but what country could they be in. And this just kind of brings uh, visions of when Jesus is talking in the New Testament about a fox has a hole, but the Son of Man has what? Nowhere to lay his head. So they nomaded about for a while, and finally a way was made for them to start their missionary work in Burma. And this is a place where there were absolutely no Christians. So this was a place that was unreached with the gospel, meaning that the gospel had not made it there, but it was also unengaged with the gospel. There wasn't any gospel work that was happening. So they landed there, but before they could even think about evangelism and discipleship, they had to learn language and culture, and they had to translate the Bible, which is a huge undertaking. Um, so they engaged themselves in a rigorous, a rigorous routine of study that would ultimately take years to accomplish. So Anne went from a life surrounded by companions to one of isolation. Her childhood best friend, who was supposed to be her missionary co-worker in this, died early in the days of their journey from complications in childbirth. And so it was just her and her husband. Anne found herself homesick with no friends, no Christian community, which being members of Covenant Hope Church, where we have great Christian community, we understand the value and the importance of that. And she had no communication with her friends and family back home. A little while into their missionary journey, they did have a little streak of happiness at the birth of their son, Roger, and they quickly fell in love with him. I mean, look at Eliza and Piper back here. <laughs> Kids are cute and adorable. Um, and this was their community. Their little family was their community. However, their son ended up passing away at only eight months old. And as I was reading um, this in her biography, it just seared my heart and challenged me because her reflection on the death of her son was, but God has taught us by afflictions what we could not learn by mercies, that our hearts are his exclusive property. We wish to sit down submissively under the rod and bear the smart until the end for which the affliction was sent shall be accomplished. In the midst of all this suffering, God himself sustained Anne both in her faith and in her commitment to serve him. She carried on a language study, she regularly met with local women, and she even wrote a catechism in the Burmese language for the children. Six years after they started their missionary work in Burma, they finally saw the first local come to faith. But this eternal victory, which was rejoiced over, was shrouded in earthly turmoil because the country was reeling with political upheaval that caused suspicion of the foreigners and even persecution towards the missionaries. Essentially, the government made an edict that said, hey, any local people that come to faith are going to be killed. So you can imagine that their population or their popularity waned because people didn't want to be associated with these people that might get them killed. 
However, by 1821, the Judsons had witnessed the salvation of 10 local believers. So this was the start of what they said was their feeble church. And despite the physical dangers that were presented, these 10 believers were truly committed and they agreed to be baptized despite the persecution or potential death penalty that they would receive for that. Although these were really great things, the time in Burma took a really um, bad toll on Anne's health. It was tropical conditions, um, all of these things, they just weren't good for her. And so it was decided between her and Adoniram that she really needed to return to America to receive medical treatment and just take some time to recover. But the work was going at such a good pace and was just had so much momentum that they decided that she should go alone. So he was going to stay, continuing the work, she was going to go back. She ended up taking two years. By the time she voyaged all the way over there, received all the medical treatment, uh, treatment and came back, it took two years, in which time the couple had no communication with one another. Um, she wrote a letter and I think it arrived like a year later or something like that. Um, so, you know, they're not texting each other cute selfies and, um, I mean, Taylor's already texted me like five pictures since we've been here, not of himself. but. Um, and so, so, yeah, this was just another realm of suffering that really both of them experienced. But while she was there, she was able to write extensively, which was helpful to raise both financial support and prayer support for their mission, which was much needed. During that time, she said, we are assured that we are in the service of him who governs the world, who has said to his disciples, go into all the world, and this is our support and our reward of all of our exertions that Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. And said, Not a hair of our head can be injured, but with the permission of him whose precious name we would make known to these unenlightened heathens. <clears throat> we would probably say lost people now, but anyways. Um, so Anne returned to Burma. Her health status was still questionable. I mean, did this trip really help at all? Um, it's probably not so much, but as soon as she got back, Adoniram said, hey, welcome back, I'm glad you're home, we're actually moving. And so without even getting off the ship, they moved to the capital city of Burma because it seemed like there was gonna be a lot of favor from the government to really get their mission going. In the four weeks that it took to travel from one city to another, everything changed. Political upheaval ensued, a war began with Britain, and once again they arrived to a new home with a warm welcome of, get out, we don't want you here. So they were once again homeless, literally no shelter over their heads. So all the recovery that Anne had experienced deteriorated again, um, and she found her, her health declining. And when the war broke out, all the foreigners were considered suspicious. So Adoniram, along with a couple of other foreigners that were in the city, were taken into prison. So for the next two years, Anne worked tirelessly caring for him and the others that were in the prison. She walked two miles to the prison almost every day. She had the sole responsibility for caring for their meal needs and their comfort needs, and she found out she was pregnant. So if you can imagine, this was just really difficult. Um, in her sufferings, she learned to look beyond the world to the peaceful, happy rest where only Jesus reigns and no oppression enters. The Judsons both suffered immensely over the two years of the war and gave birth to their daughter Maria, but she was really sickly, as you can imagine. Look at the life her mom is living. Um, the extreme situations in the prison caused a lot of grief and physical anguish for both Adoniram and for Anne. Her health declined to the point 
that it prevented her from being able to feed Maria so that the guards let Adoniram out of prison to walk around with their emaciated baby asking for other mothers to nurse her. When Adoniram was finally released from prison, for good, when the war came to an end, he didn't recognize his wife or his daughter because of the physical toll that it had taken on them. But through it all, Anne's prayer remained that their suffering would not be in vain, but that the Lord would use it for the advancement of his church. The war ended. The family was reunited. They once again were able to have a home together. This time, they had more opportunities open for the gospel because the British were in charge now, and they were going to let them do whatever they wanted with the mission. There was a lot of momentum and excitement, even though this two years of suffering took a toll on them. There was hope for the future of what God was going to do. After the extreme suffering that she faced through the war, Anne stayed true to her motto, on earth we serve God, in heaven we praise him. And she would soon have the opportunity to fulfill the second part of this motto. Because the war took such a toll on her, she was ultimately unable to recover. And at the age of 37, while Adoniram was away on a translation project, she died alone. In her last days, she lamented that her husband was away. She was going to die and leave her daughter alone. But she says, as it is the will of God, I acquiesce to his will. So Anne's legacy is one of sacrificial service to the Lord. She endured a lot of suffering, yet she was drawn closer to the Lord throughout all of it, which is evidenced by those last words that she spoke. She was the first American woman to be commissioned out as a missionary overseas, and her and Adoniram are credited as being, through the grace of God and the working of God, the founders of the Burmese church. She labored to help her husband produce the first copy of the New Testament in the Burmese language, as well as the children's catechism. She was trained as a teacher in the United States, and then when she went to Burma, she used that training to care for young girls who weren't able to receive education. So she used her life and her giftings and her passions to serve the Lord until her death. This is the story of Anne Judson. So now I would love if you guys just get together with however, however many feels comfortable for conversation, and I want you to think about these three questions. So if you need to write them down or if you want me to repeat them. Um, think about the things that Anne gave up in her life. How was Jesus better? So think about the things that Anne gave up in her life. How was Jesus better? On Sunday, for those of you that were at service and had the privilege of hearing Pastor Nissen teach, he challenged us to name our idols and then name how Jesus is better. So one of the ways that we can recognize an idol in our life is by filling in the question, God, you can have everything except blank. So how would you fill in this blank and how is Jesus better? If you did your Pastor Nissen homework, you've already answered these questions this week, but if you haven't, here's... Chance number two. And then you can just finish up your conversation by talking about how this story challenged you, encouraged you, and pointed you to Jesus. So how is Jesus better in Anne's life, in your life, and then what effect did this story have on you? So maybe we can take like seven, seven-ish minutes.
are you all going to be one of my
Maybe one more, one more minute, one more minute. Right now, you know, in our 
Yeah. 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 Okay, I hate to put an end to all the conversation, but we'll keep going and the conversation can keep going too. Um, so yeah, this is Ann Judson, one of the first missionaries sent out from America, and we're going to fast forward many, 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 many years to one of my favorite um, missionaries, which I'm sure you guys are all very familiar with her story already, is Elizabeth Elliot. Um, but I wanted to talk about Elizabeth Elliot because I think that she's one of the most well-known Christian influencers of our time. We're not clicking the link in her bio or anything like that, but she is an influencer in the most original sense in that her life and writings and work have influenced Christian women for the last several decades. Um, and I love what the Lord has done through Elizabeth Elliot because rather than introducing something new, she has clung to what is old and timeless and sacred and true. And that's, I think, what has made her influence so resounding and so impactful. If you read any of her writings or now the um, biographies that have been written about her, you see her clinging to the word of God and taking every event and pointing it back to what does the word say and what do we do with that. Um, and, and I love that about her. So Elizabeth Elliot was born to a missionary family. She began her life in Belgium, but she ended up spending most of her childhood in the United States. She grew up under the godly instruction of her parents, and from a young age, she was exposed to the idea of sacrificial living for the sake of the kingdom through real-life encounters with missionaries. Her family regularly hosted missionaries in their home, and Elizabeth was privy to hearing stories of overseas adventures and faithfulness. So in a sense, Elizabeth Elliot's childhood was a training ground to be a missionary herself. And this training continued for her as she pursued a Christian education that would specifically equip her with the skills that she needed to be a missionary. So she went to school and learned things like Bible knowledge, very important if you're going to be teaching the Bible, to know the Bible, language acquisition skills, because it would for sure entail learning some type of language, and how to cook a chicken, because if you're out in the middle of nowhere, you need the skills of how to cook a chicken. So... Her life was a training ground to serve the Lord overseas. She first met Jim Elliott, her future husband, during her university time at Wheaton. They were both committed to serving the Lord in foreign missions, to the extent that despite they were interested in one another, they were determined to stay single for the benefit of the work. Elizabeth took all of her training and all of her passion for the Lord to South America, to the Colorado Indians in the country of Ecuador. She invested herself into the translation of the Bible, into the local Colorado language, and she had help from a local guy who was called her informant. This informant served as a link for her to the cultural and linguistic knowledge that she needed to translate the Bible accurately. So long before Elizabeth acquired her famous surname of Elliot, she became quite well acquainted with suffering. In quick succession, she experienced the murder of her local informant, the total loss of all the translation work that she had completed, and a diagnosis of tuberculosis, which at that time was ultimately a death sentence. But despite these circumstances, she stayed faithful in her calling to the Lord, and she continued to stay where she was at and serve him. 
During this whole time, her and Jim had been corresponding, um, and I forget which book. She talks a lot about their like, letters that happened during this time. Um, maybe it's Passion and Purity. Has anyone read the story of their, is it Passion and Purity? Is that it? Um, so she talks a lot about um, their relationship. Lots of letter writing and kind of dancing around, does God want us to be married? Does God want us to stay single? But they finally got married there in South America, and they started a new mission station in a place called Shandia. They started their life together living in a tent in the rain-prone jungle and eating the local fare of armadillo legs and capybara, which is the world's largest rodent. And if you know... Taylor took my girls to stay in tents tonight because I'm away, because you put me in a tent and that's, that's it, I'm, I'm done with that. So, I mean, you put her in a tent, I'm like, wow, good for you. I mean, that's a huge sacrifice. So, at the heart of their marriage was a mutual desire to see unreached people reached with the gospel. They prayed together towards that end, and they ended up collaborating with four other couples to do research of the who, the when, and the how of their specific mission. So the who ended up being a group of people called the Aka people. They were completely unreached with the gospel for good reason, because they were known as being a dangerous people who had the tendency of spearing foreigners to death, or even spearing each other to death if they had some type of qualm between them. Um, the win for the mission was as soon as possible because at this time Shell, the big oil company, was very active in Ecuador and the missionaries really benefited from where they set up stations and the missionaries were kind of able to feed off of that and Shell essentially said, hey, this is getting too dangerous, we're going to pull out and so the missionary said, if we don't go now, we might not have the, the resources and the capacity to go. And also, so, so yeah, so they had to go as quickly as possible, which meant just two years after the Elliots were married and a couple of months after their daughter Val was born, this mission was supposed to take off. And the Howl was a five-man te- five team that included Elizabeth's husband Jim and four other men who were going to take a small plane, land on the river, do their best to engage this group of people. And the rest of the story is really well known. I'm sure that you're familiar with it through the various writings and movies that have been produced. But Jim and the four other men were speared to death on the bank of the river they landed on. And in their attempt to bring the message of eternal life um, to the Akas, they lost their earthly lives, leaving behind Elizabeth and the four other women as widows. In this unimaginable suffering, the Lord sustained Elizabeth's faith and even fanned the flame of her passion to see these lost people reached with the gospel. Elizabeth and her young daughter returned to the scene of the crime, and they lived among the Aka people. They labored to translate and teach the Bible, and they pointed this group of murderers to the one who was murdered for their sake. When writing about her return to the Akas, I love that she says this, She said, I could glibly say to these women going with me that God will protect us, but I have no guarantee that he will. He did not protect Jim, but that in no way shakes my trust. So the death of her husband um, and the lack of safety he experienced ultimately had no effect on who God is because God is unchanging and true and good all the time. Um, She wasn't existing in a certain state because of her circumstances, but because of her God. And the death of her husband would not be the last suffering that Elizabeth endured. Her service to the Aka 
was fraught with personnel conflict. So essentially, they finally get here with this group of people that's unreached with the gospel. They finally have favor, and the missionaries can't get along. So they spend their whole time quarreling to the point that she ended up having to leave. She had a big falling out with her mission organization, and she had to transition away from the missionary life that she trained her whole life for. Like, this was what she wanted to do, and the Lord essentially said, go home to her. Um, So she resettled in the United States. And as you know, she spent most of the rest of her life writing in a way that has greatly encouraged the church. But during that time, she experienced the death of two more husbands. She wasn't expecting to get married again, um, but her second husband died of terminal cancer. And um, I think her third husband actually ended up dying just um, old age. But Elizabeth used her suffering, her knowledge of the word, and her love for God to continue to serve the Lord by writing for his glory. She summarized the idea of suffering as a believer by saying, to be a follower of the crucified means that sooner or later, you're going to experience the cross. You're going to have a personal encounter with the cross. The cross always entails loss. The great symbol of Christianity means sacrifice, and no one who calls himself a Christian can evade this stark fact. And in regards to her service, Elizabeth said, I suppose the general opinion of missionary work says that it is intended to bring people to Christ. Only God knows if anything, and she says, in my missionary work, has ever contributed anything at all to this end. But much in that work has brought me close to Christ. And arguably, this is the point of all of our service and all of our suffering, that we would trust that whatever God allows in our life, that it would be used to bring us closer to him. So this is the story of Elizabeth Elliot, and I've got a couple of discussion questions that are very similar to the ones that you just talked about. But an incredible part of Elizabeth's story is that her trust in God, uh, she trusted in God rather than in the safety of her circumstances. So take a moment to discuss your thoughts on how her faith fueled her missionary task. And then talk about what threatens to shake your trust. As Elizabeth mentioned, upon her return to the Akas, there's no guarantee that we're going to be kept physically safe as we serve the Lord. But what promises do we have? So I would love for this question to kind of point you to the word, like, God doesn't say, I promise to keep you safe, but he does promise... What? What are some um, things in scripture that you can think of? And then, if you have time, just discuss how this story challenged you, encouraged you, and pointed you to Jesus. First question was, take a moment to discuss your thoughts on how Elizabeth's faith fueled her in the missionary task. Her for the work that she was involved in. Um, 
Whether we felt it personally or not, we know now you know, how to go through it. One more minute. One more minute. Okay, can we bring it? Let's bring it back in. Okay, we're going to move on to our last story. I love all the conversations that are happening. So I, I love these stories, and I hope that just by breaching the surface of these stories that it encourages you to go and read them for yourselves, but also to read other biographies. They can be so encouraging. And as I was telling these ladies, um, my hope is also that as we read the stories, these great heroes of the faith, that we wouldn't say like, oh gosh, what am I doing to make it focus on me, but to make, it focus, make us focus on God. Like, wow, look what he did to sustain them and to help them persevere and to use them to bring his word to a group of people who didn't linguistically have access to it because ultimately he is the one working. So I hope that you feel encouraged to learn the stories of other heroes of the faith, but I also want us to know that these stories aren't 
a thing of the past or antiquity, things that don't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. These are stories that are still happening today because we're still serving the same God today who is still working in the same amazing ways today. And so when Taylor and I were preparing to move to China to serve the Lord there, we went through lots of training and we had the joy and the privilege to meet many missionaries who had gone before us, who had served Many, many years, some of them who were born on the mission field as adults served on the mission field um, and came back to help us uh, train and prepare to go out. And it was so wonderful to sit um, under their teaching. And there was one lady in particular that I met at one of our trainings, and she just came up to me and had the most humble, like, I don't know you, but I love you type of conversation. And that was... 10 years ago and she still messages me every week and lets me know how she's praying for me and just sends different things to encourage me but she's never really told me a lot about her story I've heard it through the grapevine from other people all the amazing things that she herself has done she's so humble that um, she she doesn't talk about that very much so when I was asked to talk about this topic I immediately messaged Anne and said hey please uh, send me something of your story that I can share with these women to encourage them and so I'm just going to read this word for word, this letter that she wrote, and her name is Anne Britt. So start with the Anne, finishing with the Anne. Here we go. <laughs> so wish I could be with you lovely ladies this weekend as you have your conference. I've actually served in Aline at what was called Oasis Hospital years ago. Such a great experience. I am so blessed to be able to share just a few thoughts with you about my favorite topic, my loving Lord. I grew up in South Africa, having the blessing of both parents and grandparents serving in many different ways. I watched my mother deliver babies and knew I wanted to do the same one day. My grandmother was also a midwife and rode on a horse in the mountains of South Africa to villages to care for the women and their babies. I look back in awe at the 25 plus years of serving at hospitals in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. What an amazing privilege to be there when a new little one takes its first breath when a newborn who is delivered at home comes to us infected with tetanus because of a poultice of herbs and cow dung was rubbed into their umbilical cord. Teaching a grandmother or a relative to relactate because the baby's mom has died of AIDS. I absolutely have loved being a nurse midwife. The hospital where I served was in a war zone, so for six plus years we received casualties daily. I have seen unimaginable atrocities, just as we are hearing about in these days, human to another human being. In the midst of all this indescribable evil, I have also seen lives changed and completely surrendered to the Lord, a miracle that has no earthly explanation. What are the chances of meeting a husband in the bush of Africa? Well, God sent me the most amazing man. He came as a widower to help us reopen the hospital that, I, that had to be closed for two years because of the war. As many single women, I had my list of what a husband should be like. Guess what? God's choice for me far exceeded any list I could have ever made. My husband exuded an enthusiasm for each new day. If you've ever seen Winnie the Pooh, he was Tigger, I was Eeyore. <laughs> I don't remember too many days when he would not wake up and say, Good morning, God. Thank you for this new day. What would you have me do today? My dear hubby is with the Lord now. I know he is part of the cloud of witnesses cheering me on. He never believed in retirement, and that has rubbed off on me. I travel all over these United States to meet with our workers, mostly medical, to do informal debriefs. The passion which the Lord has given me is to be a cheerleader and an encourager. Often I hear, when we had our formal debrief, this did not come up, but this is such a hard issue for us. 
My prayer is that each one whom he sends my way will sense that I have given them my undivided attention and listened well, encouraging them to stay close to their Lord and to never let go of their hands. May I be honest and share with you that it grieves me that I hear that their lives are so busy and full that they have little time left over for the Lord. It reminds me of a card I have which depicts a gazebo with a love seat and our Lord sitting there, waiting and waiting for us to come join him. But we are so busy doing that we have little time being with him who loves us so much and wants us to have time with us I, and wants to have time with us. I often remind these dear ones that our Lord often left the multitudes to go be alone with his father. How much more do we need to do the same? I do believe that suffering is not an option and that as we look for his return, there will be more as we suffer either ourselves or watch others suffer. He often uses suffering to refine and mold us to make us be more like him. I think of what Dr. Helen Rosevere has once said, can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why. When we sit close on the love seat and get to know our loving Lord more each day, we know He will continue to take hold of our hand and lead us over the potholes and detours of our lives, giving others a picture of a life fully surrendered to the Master who knows what's ahead. Another one of my favorite quotes by Madame Guyon says, I have learned to love the darkness of sorrow. There you see the brightness of His face. My encouragement to each one of you precious ladies is to hold on tight. Take time with the one who loves you more than any other and ask him to open your eyes for those divine appointments to be a light for him in this oh-so-dark world. So as you consider um, Anne's words, I really love what she had to to say because in both of the missionary biographies that I shared, I focused a lot on what these ladies did, and it was really amazing um, what they did. But I love that Anne focused her message not on um, doing, but on being, Mm -hmm. and who we should be with, who is actually the one empowering and fueling that mission. So for our last discussion, um, I would love for you guys to chat just for a minute, because we're almost out of time, um, and then I'm going to close this up, and just say, what is keeping you from sitting in the love seat with Jesus? Actually, maybe instead of chatting, let's just, for this one, just take some time of personal reflection to write it down, Mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe we can chat after about it. So just take a minute. What is keeping you from sitting in the love seat with Jesus? As you finish up thinking about that, I did want to share a couple of resources with you guys. If you're a reader and you want to read more about these stories, 
Um, this is a book, it used to be called My Heart in His Hands, but now it's called Ann Judson, A Missionary Life for Burma by Sharon James. So all the information I shared today came from this book, which I highly recommend. Um, another book that I got most of Elizabeth Elliot's story out of is this book called Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. It's by Ellen Vaughn. And this month there's actually a new book released called Being Elizabeth Elliot. So this book focuses pretty much on the things that I shared today, kind of her early missionary life. The second book focuses on the latter half of her life. Um, I haven't read it, but uh, if it's as good as the first, then I'm sure that it's really great. Um, if you're not into books so much, but have some time to listen, there's a podcast called The Women Worth Knowing Podcast, and they've got a lot of different biographies on there. So, um, yeah, so these two ladies are featured on there, but there's also modern-day Christian leaders, um, teachers that are on there, as well as um, old missionaries, I guess, old. Um, one of the things that we talked about in Elizabeth Elliot's story was how her parents essentially trained her and prepared her, and one of the ways they did that was by hosting missionaries around their table. So, if you know any missionaries, host them. If not, there's another great series called Do Great Things for God, and they're constantly coming out with new books, and I love these because um, they're on a really any kid or adult level. It just gives a brief um, little story of the missionary, and it's got some great questions. So the girls and I just read Amy Carmichael's um, book, this one that I'm holding, and one of the things that Amy Carmichael did was um, they repeated 1 Corinthians 13 every day. Um, so faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And so after reading this, the girls and I were like, hey, let's memorize 1 Corinthians 13. And so that was one of our big takeaways from this book. Of, uh, hey, let's memorize this part of scripture together. So that was really encouraging to us. There's tons of other great missionary biographies. So, you know, maybe ask each other, hey, what's an encouraging biography that you've read? Kate Zilstra is a great resource for that because she's read every biography ever. Um, so there's that. I hope that um, from our time today that you guys are ultimately encouraged in the Lord to see the good things that he has done to sanctify women who have gone before us, um, who are still going with us now, and also the amazing ways that he has been at work to make sure that his word goes forward because he cares about those he has created and he cares about them having the opportunity to know him and we have the joy and privilege to join him in that work. So I wanted to conclude by reading the last lines of this prayer. It's a Puritan prayer from the Valley of Vision. The prayer is called Longings After God, and it's this whole prayer dedicated to God, I long for nothing but myself, nothing but holiness. And at the very end, um, it says, Wrap my life in divine love, and keep me ever desiring thee, always humble and resigned to thy will, more fixed on thyself, that I may be more fitted for doing and for suffering. So let me pray. God, we praise you. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are so good to us. And sometimes our life doesn't feel good. Our circumstance doesn't feel good. Suffering hurts. Serving is uncomfortable. Um, but we know that you are good and you are with us because in your word you have promised that you go with us even to the end of the world. I pray um, for all of the ladies here, I pray that we would all be encouraged in you, um, that we would trust you, that we would obey you, and that we would spend our lives 
um, in service to you because Jesus spent his whole life in sacrifice to us, for us. So, and I thank you for this time, and I just pray that you um, have received glory from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.